A massive child abuse scandal rocks the Catholic Church again. The Amorosa fallout continues, and we have some interesting results from a Minnesota election last night. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Oh, we have so much fantastic material to examine today. So many issues to look at and really delve into. First, let me remind you, we actually have a big event tonight right here in Dallas. We are in Dallas. That's why we are not in our home studio. And we have an event tonight. It is nearly sold out. We just have a few tickets left. We've already sold something like 3,600 tickets. I think there may be less than 100 tickets left for the event tonight. We have one tomorrow night in Phoenix. Same deal. Rapidly running out of tickets. Go check out dailywire.com slash events or Ticketmaster or LiveNation.com and you can buy the last of those tickets and join a massive crowd of fellow patriotic Americans. So go check that out right now. Also, I'd like to remind you, that your energy is is flagging. It might not be flagging right now because it depends what time you're listening to this. But if you it's the afternoon, you're looking around, you're going, oh God, I can't believe there's another seven hours to this day because it's actually only 10 o'clock in the morning. You're already dying. Well, that's why you actually need the Omax Cognitive Boost. If drinking coffee or energy drinks is not doing the trick for you, you need to try the Omax Cognitive Boost. It's a game-changing solution that fuels peak performance by boosting memory, focus, energy, and all-around clear thinking. You will indeed feel the difference immediately. And right now, Omax is offering my listeners 70% off a one-month supply of Cognitive Boost Plus free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. So if it doesn't work for you, you'd have nothing to lose. Go to omaxboost.com slash Shapiro today. Take advantage of that incredible savings. It's omax, O-M-A-X, boost.com slash Shapiro for 70% off a one-month supply. They've got dual-action breakthrough technology of two powerhouse ingredients. They call them Alpha and Omega, which makes perfect sense. Go check it out right now. Cognitive Boost. You can get it again at omaxboost.com slash Shapiro today to get 70% off a one-month supply plus free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. So you really have nothing to lose. omaxboost.com slash Shapiro. Terms and conditions do apply. Go check it out. It's solid stuff. Folks around the office have been using it. I can say their efficiency is up massively from where it was just a few weeks ago. I mean, they're just better at their job. So go check it out right now. omaxboost.com slash Shapiro. Okay, so in what is truly a horrifying, horrifying story. Yesterday, news broke of uh, a grand jury indictment that was unsealed. It was a state grand jury report on sexual abuse in six Pennsylvania dioceses, including Pittsburgh and Greensburg. It represents about three million Catholics. It's only six out of the nine dioceses, I believe, in Pennsylvania. So this is a very small sample size. But here's what it found. It's an 884-page document, two years in the making, according to PBS Local and CBS. It shines a light into the dark corners of these dioceses going back seven decades, exposing the predators and the efforts of their bishops to protect them. Today, the most comprehensive report on child sexual abuse within the church ever produced in our country was released, says Attorney General Josh Shapiro. Pennsylvanians can finally learn the extent of sexual abuse in these dioceses. And this is just the the latest example of, of a scandal rocking the Catholic Church. This is the biggest one in the United States. They say there are over three 100, 300 sexually abusing priests, uh, members of the of the archdiocese hierarchy who are involved in the sexual abuse of minors. Uh, that is larger than the Boston scandal they made spotlight about. That was 150 to 200 priests over the course of the prior 50 years. This was something like 300 priests over the course of the last 30 years. There are over 1,000 victims. The report begins with a statement. We, the members of this grand jury, need you to hear this. We know some of you have heard some of it before. There have been other reports about child sexual abuse within the Catholic Church, never on this scale. For many of us, those earlier stories happened someplace else, someplace away. Now we know the truth. It happened everywhere. The report cites 301 priests, clergy, and lay teachers. This is not comprehensive. There are probably more with credible allegations against them. There are 99 in the Diocese of Pittsburgh alone. 
Of those 99, a group of four groomed and violently sexually assaulted young boys, according to the Attorney General of the state of Pennsylvania. One boy was forced to stand on a bed in a rectory, strip naked, and pose as Christ on the cross for the priests. They took photos of their victim, so they added them to a collection of child pornography, which they produced and shared on church grounds, according to Shapiro and according to the grand jury report. And then in something that sounds like all of the worst conspiracy theories you've heard about, Pizzagate. Okay, this actually happened. According to the attorney general in the state of Pennsylvania, to make it easier to target their victims, the priests gave their favored boys gifts, gold crosses to wear as necklaces. The crosses were markings of which boys had been groomed for abuse, and therefore other priests would know which boys to abuse. According to the report, victims were brushed aside in every part of the state by church leaders who preferred to protect the abusers and their institution above all. The main thing was not to help children, but to avoid scandal. Priests were raping little boys and girls. The men of God who were responsible for them did not only nothing, they hid it all. Diocesan administrators, including the bishops, had knowledge of this conduct, and yet priests were regularly placed in ministry after the diocese was on notice that a complaint of child sexual abuse had been made. This conduct enabled offenders and endangered the welfare of children. And the stories are just horrific. I mean, there, there, there are certain allegations that, honestly, it's, it's, hard to even, it's, it's hard to even report on some of these allegations because it's so heartbreaking and horrifying and evil. And some of the allegations were things like a seven-year-old girl who was, who was forcibly sexually assaulted while she was in the hospital recovering from a tonsil surgery. Um, a, a boy, a young boy who was sexually molested by a priest and then his mouth washed out with holy water so that he would think that this was part of a religious ritual. Uh, it's it's just it's just horrifying in every possible way. And of course, there were people who were basically whitewashing this for a long time. So Cardinal Whirl, who's active in Pennsylvania, obviously, uh, he was asked about all this and he said he doesn't think this is some sort of massive crisis. Right now, when you hear of abuse, when you hear of a case of abuse, when you hear of they're talking about things that happened decades ago for the most part. And I don't think this is some massive, massive crisis. Okay, that was Cardinal Donald Wuerl who led the Washington Archdiocese. He is accused by the grand jury of helping to protect abusive priests when he was Pittsburgh's bishop. He's disputed the allegations. He says that the report confirms he acted with diligence with concern for the victims. There were notes that were sent to particular priests who were known to have molested children in which they expressed sympathy for the priests, saying that the priests obviously were undergoing something very tough they had to live through since they were driven to do these, these terrible, awful things. Most of the Pennsylvania victims were boys. Girls were abused as well. And one boy was forced to say confession to a priest who abused him. Uh, the, the grand jury concluded a succession of Catholic bishops, and this is, this is Reuters, and other diocesan leaders tried to shield the church from bad publicity and financial liability. They failed to report accused clergy to police and sent abusive priests to so-called treatment facilities, which laundered the priests and then permitted hundreds of known offenders to return to ministry. And there are accusations that there are similar things happening all around the world uh, in, in churches ranging down to South America. This is a serious problem within the Catholic Church. Matt Walsh, who is a, a Catholic himself, has a piece over at dailywire.com today, our website, talking about how there needs to be a full-scale cleansing within the church. Uh, and it is simply too bad that this has not been done before and it is a stain on the church. Now, the reason that this is newsworthy is not only because it's obviously newsworthy, but because of what it says about each and every one of us. Now, not everybody in the world is going to be an abuser, thank God. Most people are going to oppose abusers, think this stuff is evil, think this stuff is horrible. But we do have to ask ourselves, what are you willing to cover for? And this is true for any institution to which you hold loyalty, because let's not make any mistake here. People are singling the Catholic Church out as though the Catholic Church is an outlier when it comes to the abuse of children, as though the Catholic Church is somehow 
much, much, much worse than other institutions when it comes to abuse of children. How many children have been abused in public schools? My guess is a lot of children have been abused in public schools. There have been studies done. We're talking thousands of kids across the country who have been abused in public schools by adults in positions of authority. There have been problems inside the Jewish community. There have been problems inside the Protestant community. There have been problems inside, certainly inside Hollywood. The treatment of children as sex objects happens all over the world in a variety of institutions. The question is not whether there are evil human beings. There certainly are. There are demonic human beings out there, as Walsh says, who ought to be punished to the severest extent of the law. And the only tragedy here is the death penalty isn't available for molestation of children. Because if you molest a child, there is no question that you should be killed in the most egregious possible way. You know, folks who, who oppose the death penalty, I understand where they are coming from in terms of the efficacy of the death penalty and the administration of the death penalty. It's hard not to look at priests who are molesting seven-year-old girls while they lie in hospital beds and think those people shouldn't be put to death, right? I mean, these people have forfeited a right to live. But with all of that said, the real question is, why does this stuff last so long? And it happens within every, it happens in football institutions, right? Penn State football. It happens all over. People feel more loyalty to institutions than they do to individuals unless they know the individual. This is just a, a it's a screw up in the brain, okay? They, they, there, there are a couple of instinctive things that we as human beings have that functioning in our brain that are in conflicts with one another. One of them is that we have a lot of sympathy for people we know. The second is we have very little sympathy for people we don't know. And the third is that we have a lot of loyalty to our in-group. So social science suggests that we are all members of in-groups. There are certain groups with which we identify. And when those in-groups are threatened by out-groups, then we tend to rally in support of the in-group because we have to bat, batten down the hatches. We have to ward off the threat. And this is true in pretty much every area of life. It's true politically, it's true religiously, in many places in the world, it's true ethnically, right? All of these sort of social institutions where you feel protected, these are the things that you must defend at all costs. You must defend them no matter what. You have to defend them from the predations of the outside world. And that's a natural thing to do because human beings are at least half animal, right? Even if as a religious person, we're partially made of the, the dust of the ground and we're partially divine. We're partially ha had God's breath put into us in Genesis. But we are still part animal. And the, the animal part of us, feels safety in defense of an institution. We feel like we need institutions to protect ourselves, and we're not wrong about that. When that comes into conflict with nameless, faceless individuals we don't know, we tend to push the faceless, nameless individuals off to the side. And this is why all these folks out there who tend to portray evil people as monsters or the people who cover for evil people as monsters, I think that that's just a lack of perspective on human nature. I think the Bible actually has some pretty good perspective on human nature. Each of us has a war going on inside of us between what we know is good and what we know is right and what we know is bad, but also serves our interests. And the hard part of being a human being is trying to determine when the stuff that is bad that is motivating us is actually bad. Because the easiest thing to do is to back justify. The easiest thing to do is to say, listen, my institution has to be protected. So in the Jewish community, for example, there have been similar allegations against certain rabbis. And you will see the local community defend the rabbi. You'll see the local community try and stigmatize the victim. Right? This, this has happened in, in certain cases in pretty much every religious community I can think of. And that's because the idea is, well, if you hand this rabbi over to the secular courts for prosecution, then what you're really doing is bringing shame upon the community. It's going to open us up to allegations that we're a closed community and a bad community. That is, But, but here's the truth of it. When people do evil things, it is your job as an individual to call them out. And the only way you're going to be able to preserve the truth of your institution is by calling this sort of stuff out. Defense of an institution, when that institution sins, is a quick way to destroy the credibility of the institution. I can tell you that the Catholic Church's failure to take on this issue in any serious way for years and years and years and years 
has driven millions of people, I'm sure, away from the Catholic Church. Because people look at churches, people look at synagogues, they look at places that are specially supposed to be spiritual, and they say, if these people are supposed to be better, then what exactly does worse look like? Defense of your institution requires you to call out your institution when your institution does something wrong. And this has political ramifications as well. And I want to talk about that in just a second. But first, let's talk about your internet protection. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where your data goes. This is true for me particularly since I am the target of many people online. Making an online purchase, simply accessing your email, it could put private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, but they often sell it to other corporations who would like to profit from that information, which is why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN, it costs less than seven bucks a month. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and you want to keep hackers and spies from seeing that data, ExpressVPN is the solution. If you don't want to hand over your data to internet resellers, go check it out, ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months for free at expressvpn.com slash Ben. That's express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash Ben for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Ben to learn more. Okay, so... I think all of this has some pretty significant ramifications for politics because we have political in-groups too. It's not just religious in-groups. I mean, hell, we'll form in-groups to defend our football team. We'll form in-groups to protect Jerry Sandusky. We'll form in-groups to protect anybody who threatens our, our way of life. And those in-groups can be very dangerous. This is particularly true in the realm of politics because politics is an area where we must be having discussions with one another. It's an area where we must assume that the other side at least has enough goodwill that they want to have a conversation with us. And yet what we see in our politics today is that both sides are willing to justify ju virtually anything, virtually anything, because we feel that our in-group is threatened. And here's the thing. We're not wrong about our in-group being threatened because you can have a mutually reinforcing system in which both sides begin to treat the out-group even worse. And remember, every out-group is somebody else's in-group. You begin treating everybody else's outgroup worse, so that outgroup treats you worse, and then you treat them worse, and this is how you spiral down into anarchy and chaos. If you are a person who looks at your institution, you say, my, my political institution, my Republican Party, must be defended at all costs. And that mean, if that means defending some vile behavior, I'll defend vile behavior because that's what fighting looks like. If that's something you're doing, maybe you ought to examine whether that is actually appropriate or whether it's even necessary. And if you're on the left and you're defending Antifa and you're saying that Antifa is necessary because my in-group is threatened, these evil right-wing Nazis, they're, they're, they're attacking my in-group, so I will defend Antifa understand that you are contributing to the moral decay of your own side. You have two choices when it comes to your own institution and your institution conflicts with morality. Choice number one is to help cleanse that institution, keep that institution moral, while at the same time fighting off the people who would attack that institution for its actual morality. There's a difference between people attacking your institution for moral reasons and people attacking your institution for immoral reasons. Right? People who are attacking the Catholic Church's handling of child abuse, they're doing so for moral reasons. People who are attacking the Catholic Church without recognizing that institutional failures occur at institutions at virtually every level around the globe, right? those are people who are doing so for immoral reasons. So motive does matter here. When we begin to question each other's motives, it gives us a rationale for defending bad behavior on our own side, immoral behavior on our own side, and evil behavior on our own side. And this makes it more likely that our politics breaks down. It makes it more likely that there's religious conflict. The minute we stop trying to 
morally critique ourselves in the same way we, we, we critique the other side. The minute that we start seeing the threat to our in-group as more pressing than the morality of our in-group, we destroy the moral fabric upon which the in-group is based in the first place. Our institutions are, are killed from the inside. You want to save your institution? Make sure that you're as pure as you can be, and then make sure that you can fight the other side that is attempting to destroy you for things that are wrong, right? If the other side is just critiquing, that's one thing. If the other side is trying to destroy you for things that are, are, are just plainly immoral, like they're trying to destroy you for no reason, then that's when you fight back. But we have to choose when to fight back. So I'm going to talk about this in the context of a Minnesota election and, uh, and President Trump. So in Minnesota yesterday, there was a really interesting election. So first of all, the blue wave is probably on its way. So people who are, who are kind of whistling through past the, the graveyard here, maybe, I'm, maybe it's wrong. Maybe it turns out that Republicans somehow hold on to the House. Maybe it turns out that everything is fine. If the registrations in Minnesota are any indicator, as Ed Morrissey over at Hot Air points out, the data don't look particularly great for Republicans. Minnesota, of course, was a state that President Trump nearly won. It was much more competitive than Hillary Clinton certainly thought that it was going to be. And Minnesota last night, it had a bunch of primaries. The way it works in Minnesota is that it's an open primary, but when you go in, you can pick a ballot and then you have to vote on that team's ballot. So if you are a Republican, you could theoretically go in and pick the Democratic ballot, but then you have to vote on the Democratic ballot the whole way. Well, last night, the Democrats voted on their ballots two to one in ratio over the Republicans. So there were a bunch of primaries on the Republican side, but Democrats basically showed up at a two to one margin over Republicans just for the primaries. That suggests that Minnesota is going to be extraordinarily blue this November. And if that's any indicator nationally, it shows that the, the level of enthusiasm on the Democratic side is extremely high. But the real story from last night in Minnesota is that the Republican gubernatorial race is between former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty, who you remember from his lackluster 2012 run for, for president. He was in the race for all of about five seconds before he dropped out because he is about as colorful and interesting as dishwater. And he was running again against a guy named Jeff Johnson, who's a commissioner from Hennepin County. And Pawlenty was heavily favored, and then Pawlenty lost. And the reason that Pawlenty lost, it is widely perceived, is that Pawlenty was not supportive enough of President Trump. So going all the way back to 2016, after the P-word tape came out, the tape of President Trump talking about grabbing women by their genitals, Tim Pawlenty had said that President Trump was unsound, uninformed, unhinged, and unfit to be president of the United States. And so this came up in the campaign. Uh, here was the final ad that was cut by, Je by Jeff Johnson in this particular race. Uh, and you can see him slamming Tim Pawlenty. Tim Pawlenty called Donald Trump unhinged and unfit to be president just weeks before the election against Hillary Clinton. Jeff Johnson supported Donald Trump both before and after the election, and it matters. When the Supreme Court and our economy were on the line, Tim Pawlenty stuck his finger in the wind. I'll lead based on principle, not polling, and I won't panic when it matters most. I'm Jeff Johnson, the conservative in this race, and I hope to earn your vote. Vote Jeff okay, Johnson so that on was August the, the basic that, that was the basic pitch that was made, is that it was terrible, awful, terrible for Paul Lenti to say those terrible, terrible things about a man who'd just been caught on tape saying he was grabbing women by the genitals. And this was enough to swing the primary against Paul Lenti. Paul Lenti basically admitted as much. He said, listen, you know, I'm out of step in the Trump era. And I want to talk about what Paul Lenti gets wrong here and what the Republican Party gets wrong and what the Republican base gets wrong. Because I think everybody gets something wrong here. Here, Tim Pawlenty was explaining why he lost last night. Here was his explanation. People are going to ask, and what do you see in this result? Uh, I think, you know, the circumstances we live in, in the era of uh, a different kind of leadership in terms of President Trump and the like, and 
I just don't fit well into that uh, era, into that picture. Okay, so he basically says, I will now recede into the West uh, and he will he will not be back in the near future. Now, the reality is that Paul Lenti also lost because he was always milquetoast. Paul Lenti lost because he went and was a lobbyist for four years after he was governor of, of Minnesota and after he ran for president in 2012. So it wasn't like he was a foregone conclusion he was going to win, but his anti-Trump stance really cost him. And he's not the only one, obviously. Mark Sanford, the Republican representative from South Carolina, he has been ousted now in a primary. Senator Jeff Flake in Arizona was ousted. Uh, Senator, Bo well, he, he basically said he would retire. Bob Corker in Tennessee basically said he would retire. President Trump has become a litmus test for a lot of Republicans. And the reason for that is institutional loyalty. But it's, it's a little bit more than that. I think that some of the institutional loyalty to President Trump, using President Trump as a litmus test, is partially justified. I think it's partially justified, and I think that it is partially unjustified. I think that it is, it is justified in the sense that people want to see you fight for your party, and it's unjustified in the sense that if you, if you criticize President Trump for good reason, maybe it's because he deserves to be criticized. I'll explain a little bit more about that in just a second. But first, let's talk a little bit, just, just for a second, let's talk about your sleep quality. The reality is you're not sleeping as well as you could be. The reason you're not sleeping as well as you could be is because of the sheets upon which you are sleeping. So you don't think about your sheets. You just went down to your local Sears and you picked up the cheapest set of sheets you could find. You're like, oh, who cares? It's just a piece of cloth. What does it matter? Well, the answer is it does matter because a nice sheet makes your life so much better. People just don't spend enough money on sheets, frankly. And if you don't give a sheet about sheets, then you know, you're not going to be able to actually <laughs> sleep well at night. And that's where Bull and Branch comes in. Everything Bull and Branch makes, from bedding to blankets, it's made from pure 100% organic cotton, which means they start out super soft, they get even softer over time, and can buy directly from them. So you're essentially paying wholesale prices. Luxury sheets can cost up to a thousand bucks in the store, but Bull and Branch sheets are only a couple of hundred bucks. So even if you're looking at a luxury sheet, get this, it's a lot less expensive and it's just the same quality. There are three ex-presidents who sleep on these sheets. They are fantastic. Shipping is free. You can try them for 30 nights. Bull and Branch sheets are so good that when my wife and I got them, we actually threw out all of our other sheets and only got Bull and Branch. They are that comfortable. If you don't love them, you can send them back for a refund. You're not going to want to send them back. To get you started right now, my listeners get 50 bucks off your first set of sheets at bullandbranch.com, promo code Ben. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com, promo code Ben. Again, 50 bucks off your first set of sheets at bullandbranch.com, promo code Ben. Okay, so back to Paul Enti and this and the, and Donald Trump is the new litmus test for the Republican Party. So you cannot be, you just cannot be in the Republican Party, a, a winning electoral candidate and be highly critical of the president of the United States. And this is different than it was during George W. Bush's tenure. So when George W. Bush was president, there was a feeling that you could cross Bush and get away with it. You cannot cross Trump and get away with it. So why is it that Trump has become such a litmus test? Well, why? I think it's because of attitude. So there's been this attempt to intellectualize Trump. There are all these people, Henry Olson over at the Manhattan Institute and, and a variety of Selena Zito, a lot of people trying to wrap a sort of intellectual veneer around what it is about Trump that is so appealing. There's only one thing about President Trump that is so appealing, and it is an appealing thing, and it's that he punches people, right? What, what is appealing about President Trump, everybody knows this on a gut level, is that President Trump is a fighter, right? This was the he fights thing during 2016. And as I said, during 2016, he has a hammer in search of a nail. Sometimes he hits a nail, sometimes he hits a baby. To understand why that's so appealing to the Republican base, you have to understand that this was a missing portion of the Republican soul for years and years and years and years. Okay, Trump won the primaries because he was by far the most aggressive, no-holds-barred candidate. There's just no question about it. Republican primary voters figured that he would do to Hillary Clinton what he did to Jeb Bush, namely manhandle her and then throw her through a wall, which is what he did to Jeb Bush. And they weren't totally wrong about that, right? Trump in the debates. I remember watching the primary debates and thinking to myself, you know, it would be really amusing to see Trump on stage with Hillary. 
right? Didn't everybody think that? Didn't everybody think this would make great TV? And he would just hit her with the kitchen sink? That it wouldn't matter. He, he would bring up Juanita Broderick in debate, that he'd be the kind of guy who would bring up anything. And he did. He fulfilled his promise, right? So he pile drove Hillary Clinton after pile driving Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and brutalizing Jeb Bush. What's more, backing Trump in the Republican in the Republican primaries and in the general election lent voters a sense that they were in the fight. You have to understand, I think 2012 actually broke the country in a lot of ways. After Mitt Romney, who was the cleanest candidate in the history of American politics, was destroyed by Barack Obama and the Democrat media complex, as Andrew Breitbart called it. After the Democrats turned that clean candidate into a sexist who wanted to put women in binders and put black people back in chains and forcibly cut gay kids' hair and stick dogs on the top of cars, Republican voters basically went full Sean Connery in The Untouchables. Remember the famous scene in The Untouchables where Sean Connery is sitting there, he's, he's Malone, he's sitting there next to Elliot Ness, played by Kevin Costner, and Sean Connery says to him, what are you prepared to do? He says, what are you prepared to do? And then he says, if you really want to fight this thing, right, they pull a knife, you pull a gun, he sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue, right? You remember that whole spiel? That's how Republicans felt after 2012. They felt like, okay, now we're in a knife fight, so let's bring a gun. Trump is the knife and the morgue and all of the consequences for bad democratic action wrapped up into one giant orange package of id, right? That was, the, that was what Trump was and that's what Trump still is. And so the Republican base began asking its politicians the same question that Sean Connery asks, right? What are you prepared to do, right? That was, that's the question that everybody is asking Tim Pawlenty and every Republican primary c- candidate. And if they're not willing to defend Trump, people take that as a lack of courage. In fact, the worse things Trump says or does, the more the primary base sees it as a mark of courage to defend him, right? This is the weird counterintuitive logic is that if Trump does something really bad, really polarizing, and somebody on the left criticizes him, the question is, you want Trump to win, don't you? You want the left to lose, don't you? So if you really had any balls, you'd actually just support what Trump just said, right? If it turns out that there is an N-word tape and people say, well, I'm not gonna go along with Trump on that, There will be a large portion of the Republican base who will say, how dare you not go along with Trump on that? Not because they love the N-word, but just because everything is a what are you prepared to do test. Everything is a do you have the stones to stand up with the man who defeated Hillary Clinton? Do you have the courage to stand up with the man who saved America? Right. No matter what Trump does, it's become now a test not of Trump but of the people who are willing to support him. Because the question is, what are you prepared to do? Are you prepared to send people to the morgue? Are you prepared to use a gun? Now, Trump could make all of this easy by just not doing that stuff, right? If he just didn't do that stuff, then the loyalty test would be easy because you could be loyal to good principle and also be loyal to President Trump and you wouldn't have to criticize him. Everything would be hunky-dory. But that's not what Trump does. That's not what Trump does. Every black mark on his record becomes a sort of referendum, not on Trump, but on all of the other candidates who are out there. And the problem is there are two sides to this equation. It's not just Republican primary voters who are voting in elections, folks. Every time Trump does something bad and the Republican base says, what are you prepared to do to defend this guy? The Democratic base is willing to show up in twice the numbers. Okay, so this is why it's imperative that Trump not actually force the choice. It's why it's imperative that Trump not actually force the choice. But it is important to recognize that Trump is filling a gap that the Republican Party left. Trump did expose a crack in the Republican political facade, which was an unwillingness to challenge prevailing political norms. He would go out there and he would say politically incorrect things, some of which were true. Some of it was just him being a jackass, but some of that stuff was true. And a lot of people said, Okay, well, he's at least willing to, I mean, he drove right through that thing, like through political correctness, like a like a truck driving through a plate glass window. And a lot of people on the right resonated to that. And then they say, okay, well, what are you willing to do to maintain the shattering of that glass? Because good that that glass was shattered. 
And if the answer is that you're not willing to go along with whatever silly thing Trump did today, well, then that means that you're not loyal enough. That is why Trump has become such a litmus test. Now, is there an answer for conservatives who don't actually back some of the stuff that Trump says or does? Yes, there is. The answer is the same as it was before Trump was ever on the scene. And that is you actually have to show that there is some fight in the dog. You actually have to show that you are willing to step up and battle the left with just as much alacrity as President Trump has battled the left. You have to show that you are willing to go in, you're willing to go to political war with people on the left in favor of conservative principles, not just to go to war with the left, but you have to show that you are willing to step onto the battlefield and punch somebody in the mouth rhetorically if they deserve it. You have to show that you're in the fight. The, big, the reason Trump exists is because the Republicans didn't feel like they were in the fight. Trump came along, he felt like he was in the fight, and now everything he does is a referendum on whether you are in the fight or not. The other way to do this is that you have to independently show that you're in the fight. You can't wait for the president to lead. You can't be conciliatory. You can't go around pretending that, that the left isn't a threat to the American way of life. You actually have to go out and fight yourself. If you're an independent fighter, you can get away with this stuff. But the perception cannot be the perception cannot be that you are harsher on President Trump than you are on the left and that you are willing to undercut President Trump because you want strange new respect from folks who are on the other side of the aisle. That's what happened in Minnesota last night. That's why Trump has become a litmus test for so much of the Republican base. And that's why the best move here is for President Trump to stop making silly mistakes, for the base to recognize that sometimes President Trump makes silly mistakes, and for the base to be intellectually honest enough to recognize that when a politician criticizes President Trump, it's not because that politician wants President Trump to lose or the conservative agenda to lose. Maybe they're criticizing him because he did something wrong. This goes back to our institutional loyalty point. If you are so loyal to an institution, you are green lighting bad stuff, Maybe you ought to examine your own principles because institutional loyalty is only earned when the institution itself is promulgating good things more than it is promulgating bad things or when you are not promulgating bad things in order to uphold an institution that you think is promulgating good things, right? We have to hold ourselves to a higher standard as moral human beings. Okay, so in just a second, I want to get to Omarosa and an institution that certainly does not hold itself to higher standards. This would be our mainstream media. But first, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com. For $9.99 a month, you can subscribe to Daily Wire. You get the rest of the show live. You get the rest of Andrew Clavin's show live, the rest of Michael Knowles' show live. You get a lot of stuff. It's awesome. Also, you get the Leftist Tears Hot or Cold Tumblr. It's right here. You can't see it. That's because when I go on the road, it becomes invisible. But it is just that fantastic. It is great. I, I, I actually created a mini cloaking device just so it wouldn't be stolen by TSA. This, this, this Leftist Tears Hot or Cold Tumblr delicious. I mean, just spectacular. So go check that out for $99 a year. You get that. That's the annual subscription. It's cheaper than the monthly. Also, when you subscribe at YouTube or iTunes, you get access to our Sunday specials. And we have a great one coming up this Sunday. Greg Gutfeld is stopping by and Greg is terrific. And uh, here's uh, Greg talking about it. Hey, I'm Greg Gutfeld. This week on the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special, I'm appearing. We're going to talk about politics, pop culture, obviously Donald Trump, my new book. We're going to talk a lot about my new book because, frankly, I'm trying to sell the damn thing. But tune in. It's going to be great. Okay, so go check that out. Subscribe to YouTube iTunes. We are the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast in the nation. Now, even while I am critical of our own side and the other side for, for greenlighting bad behavior simply in order to create a litmus test of loyalty against the other side, it is important to recognize that the left is threatening America's way of life. There are a bunch of things the left does that are really threatening to true morality. Here's an example. Chelsea Clinton, who is considered a moderate within the Democratic Party, she did an event the other night at which she talked about legalizing abortion, and she suggested that legalizing abortion was good because it had created economic growth. So killing babies, fun for profit. It is not a disconnected fact to 
Jess's T-shirt of 1973, that American women entering the labor force from 1970 to 2009 added $3.5 trillion to our economy, right? Like the net new entrance of women. That is not disconnected from the fact that Roe became the law of the land in January of 1973. I mean, once you kill babies, then women could go to work. I mean, doesn't that seem like a, a nice moral thing to do? You understand why people on the right are so anti-left, right? The reason is because of stuff like this. The moral equation that says, look, as soon as we could start killing children in the womb, suddenly women could work as like associate lawyers at law firms and put in 2,200 billable hours and we added a bunch of money to the economy. She's literally putting a price on children. It's so funny. Folks on the left will say that Marco Rubio puts a price, a price on children because he took money from the NRA. Okay, the Democrats literally put prices on children with comments like that. She literally said that the slaughter of legitimately a million babies a year in the United States for the last 30 years, right? The last 30, longer than that, last 45 years, that, that the, kill, the mass killing of children, right? M tens of millions of children. It was worth it because like for each one of those kids, we made probably like a thousand bucks. And we probably made like, a, we probably made 10,000 bucks for each one of those dead kids. You wonder why the right is so solid in its support of President Trump. It's also because the left refuses to be reasonable on any of these issues. So as I say, as the outgroup threat multiplies, the in-group becomes more cohesive. Uh, and that's something that the left should recognize here. Now, meanwhile, the media have been doing yeoman's work to, to demonstrate exactly where they stand on all of these issues. They've been continuously granting all sorts of credibility to Amarosa Manigault, who continues to make the rounds, even though everyone knows that she's sort of a pathological liar, that was her reputation when she was on The Apprentice. I, I believe she was fired a couple of times from the Clinton administration, three times on The Apprentice, and now from the White House. So she, th that lady has been fired more often than, than a Bill Clinton cigar. I mean, she, she, has, been, she has been lit up like, like a Christmas tree. I mean, she has been fired just a bunch of times. Anyway, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, she makes the point that the press who are jumping on all the Omarosa stuff, they're doing a lot to divide the country, and she's not wrong about this. Frankly, if we want to look at who's creating divisions in the country, I think the media has done more to divide this country, certainly far more than this president ever has, by elevating uh, people like the author of this book, by focusing on uh, a sparsely attended rally instead of all of the policies that this administration and that this president are enacting. Okay, and she is correct about all of this. It is also important to note that Omarosa is saying stuff that is completely unverified. Like she suggested that Trump's pastor, I can't remember her name, Patty White, I think, uh, that she was having an affair with Trump in the book. She just sort of suggests that out of the blue. And then she says that Trump knew all about the WikiLeaks emails before they were actually revealed, which would in fact implicate President Trump in the hacking and also in direct conspiracy with the Russian government. Here's Omarosa saying this again with no supporting evidence. And this was parroted all over the place by the media yesterday. Donald Trump know about those emails before they came out? Absolutely. He knew about them? Yes. He knew what was coming out before WikiLeaks yes. released them? You're saying Donald Trump had a back channel. <laughs> I didn't say that. You did. But I will say that How do I am going to expose then? the corruption that went on in the campaign and in the White House. I'm going to continue to blow the whistle on all of this. Okay, so she says she spoke to Mueller about all of this. If that's really the case, if there was any evidence of that, then we'll find out in the Mueller investigation. But if you believe Omarosa on this, then I think you got to screw loose. I mean, she's, she's insanely dishonest. But the media are treating her as though everything she says is gospel truth. And also the media are going overboard by suggesting that everything that President Trump does is equally bad. So, for example, the president called Omarosa a dog because he said that she was basically fired like a dog, which, as we discussed yesterday, is one of his favorite turns of phrase. He has said that half the United States has been fired like a dog. Right? It's just his favorite thing to say. The media declared yesterday 
that this was the worst thing anyone had ever said. Joe Scarborough, who gave President Trump millions and millions of free ad dollars on MSNBC during the presidential run before turning on him and deciding that Trump was actually a bad guy. He says that Trump opened the door to genocide by calling Omarosa a dog. Yes, I'm, yes, right on the money there, Joe. I'm, I'm not an exaggeration. Any, oh my goodness. During the Holocaust, Nazis referred to Jews as rats. Uh, in Rwanda, uh, genocide was often justified uh, with the calling Tutsis cockroaches, slave owners throughout history, considered slaves subhuman animals. But you can see time and time again, and I'll, I'll go to Alicia here, uh, this is actually how dictators and tyrants open the door, and they do it by dehumanizing their political opponents. Yes, the Holocaust is right around the corner because Omarosa Manigault taped President Trump in the Oval Office and then Trump called her a dog and said she was be fired like a dog. That's exactly the same as the Nazis spending years and years labeling all Jews rats. And it's the same thing as the government in Rwanda labeling the Tutsis cockroaches. Exactly the same thing. Right on the money media. I can't imagine why people don't trust you on any of this stuff. But this brings up the other big story of yesterday. And that, of course, is the controversy over the N-word, okay? The controversy over the N-word. So this, uh, Amarosa Mangold suggested that there was a tape of President Trump saying the N-word. This had been long rumored that there was an apprentice tape in which the president dropped the N-word. Now, I should say that if the president did in fact drop the N-word and, and drop it in a, in a you know, specifically derogatory fashion. Obviously, he's not doing like the Michael Scott, Chris Rock routine from The Office where he just is repeating a comedy routine uh, or he's rapping lyrics or something. If the president says, you know, those stupid N words or he if he says anything like that, then I think a primary is probably in order in the Republican Party. But there's no evidence that any of this happened, right? Because if that tape existed, do you think that might have come out by now? It was a long rumor during the 2016 campaign. That tape, if that tape exists, that sucker is in the public sphere by now. No question about it. But there, there's a problem inside the White House, and that is you can't say anything without President Trump's prior approval. There's a problem within the comms team over at the White House. The problem is if you make a reasonable assumption, it may not be reasonable in light of what President Trump wants you to say. So if Dana Perino, who's the press secretary under George W. Bush, had been asked, is there a tape of President Bush saying the N-word? Dana Perino would have just said no. Right? No, there's not. And then if it had come out there was, she would have been shocked and horrified. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is asked about this, and here's what she said, and this, of course, was the, the statement that generated a 1,000 headlines yesterday. Can you stand at the podium and guarantee the American people they'll never hear Donald Trump utter the N-word on a recording in any context? Uh, I can't guarantee uh, anything, but I can tell you that the president addressed this question directly. I can tell you that I've never heard it. Okay, so... That is not a great response from Sarah Huckabee Sanders, right? You'd want her to just say no, or she could theoretically just read Trump's tweet because Trump tweeted it out. The problem is that if you're, it, it, she has the worst job in America. Being, being the press secretary for President Trump is very difficult because if you say something that is reasonable, like, no, he didn't, Trump could call you into his office and say, you know, I didn't, but I just want to troll the other side. Like there, there could be a thousand reasons why President Trump doesn't like what you say. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders is obviously going to avoid implicating any hard answer here even though a hard answer would be better. Because like, really, what's the downside? If she says no, and then it turns out that the tape breaks, so what? Like, so what? What are they going to say? That she's a liar? They're already saying she's a liar. They're going to say that the, the, the administration was dishonest? Like, okay. I mean, what, what exactly is the downside? But the fact that the media have jumped on the N-word stuff without a shred of evidence that this has actually happened is 
pretty astonishing. It really is. I mean, again, we have not a shred of evidence that Trump has used the N-word. The man's been public for 30, 40 years, 50 years probably of his career. There's no evidence that he's ever used the N-word. The people who who Amorosa is quoting say that he never used the N-word. And there was a tape they played on CBS, Amorosa talking to a couple of other campaign staffers like Katrina Pearson and Katrina Pearson saying he said it, he said it. Well, just because Katrina Pearson said Trump said something, I mean, that's like if somebody was having a conversation with me and they said, you know, there's a rumor out there that President Trump stripped a donkey down in Mexico one day. Right. I would probably be like, yeah, maybe. Right. <laughs> like, because who, who, who the hell knows? Right. Like the answer is he didn't, of course. But when you're in a conversation with people, you just sort of say stuff. So that is so using that as evidence that there actually is an N word tape is just evidence the media is willing to go out of its way for anything. Remember, these are the same folks, exactly the same folks who said that Linda Tripp was the worst person who ever lived for having taped Monica Lewinsky talking about an affair in the Oval Office with Bill Clinton. So taping was bad when it was about Bill Clinton. And we should tear to Linda Tripp a new one. And we shouldn't take her seriously. And she was a liar. But Omarosa Manigault, a proven liar over and over and over, a turncoat politically about 80,000 different ways, right? We should definitely believe her when she says that there's an outstanding N-word tape for the president of the United States. And as I said yesterday, if there is an N-word tape, it's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem in a variety of senses. It, it Obviously, the president of the United States should not be somebody who utters the N-word. The, the Republican Party, the party of Abraham Lincoln, should not be the party of the N-word. But there's no evidence Trump said any of this. So what the hell are we even talking about? The only reason we're talking about this is because the media have decided to grant additional credibility to a woman who has none. And that is a serious problem with the media and their own credibility and demonstrates full scale what their agenda is in in all of this. Okay, time for some stuff I like, and then we'll do some things I hate, and then we will do a psalm because we need a little bit of uplift today. So things I like, this is just hilarious. Okay, so in another example of people being called racist who are not actually racist, they're just dumb. Uh, there is a, an episode of the $100,000 Pyramid. Uh, and in this episode of the $100,000 Pyramid, one of the contestants is given a clue. And he is supposed to convey to the person sitting across from him what the category is. The category, as you'll see, is people whose last names are Obama. And now the that's a very easy category. It's at the bottom of the pyramid, as you know from the pyramid game. The, the questions get harder as you get up toward the top. So this is an easy one, right? All you have to say is Barack, Michelle, Malia, Sasha, right? That's all you have to say. And they'll get people whose last names are Obama. Okay, that is not what this guy says. And it is really funny. For $50,000, here's your first subject. Go. <clears throat> Bin Laden. <laughs> oh, that is some spectacular stuff. Just just excellent, excellent stuff right there. So is he a blatant evil racist? No, he's an idiot. Okay, can we just like make a couple of distinctions in American life? If you mix up Obama and Osama, it's because you're dumb. It's not because you think that Barack Obama is actually an Afghani terrorist or a Saudi terrorist living in the caves of Afghanistan or buried at the bottom of the ocean at this point. Like that's not that's not actually a thing. But people were like, oh, this is a racist contestant because he conflated Obama and Osama. Or he's just an idiot. I have a basic rule about politics. That which you cannot attribute to stupidity, you may be able to you may be able to attribute it to malign influence and malign intent. Otherwise, just attribute things to people being stupid. People are dumb. People are so damn stupid. Like, this is one of the great 
tragedies of life. I've quoted it a thousand times. I'll quote it again. Adam Carolla says, and he's exactly right, one of the great disappointments in life is when you're five years old, you look around at the world and you see all these adults and all these adults have cars and they have nice clothes and they have houses and they can buy nice things and they have money in their wallets and they all look so put together. And you think, God, those adults are so smart. And then you become an adult and you realize that all of the adults around you are the same kids who are sitting next to you, picking their nose and eating it when you were five. They're the same people. Okay, adults are just as dumb as you as the kids who were around you when you were a kid. And so when you look at people, the, maybe just to be nice, we should first attribute things to people being idiots and also to be accurate because most people are idiots. Now, I think that that is true with regard to government conspiracy theories as much as it is true with regard to things like the $100,000 pyramid, which brings us to things that I hate. Okay, so when it comes to things that I hate, there's a, there's a, always an intent to suggest that everything bad that happens in life was part of a bigger plan. We're sort of like the Joker this way. Well, you know, the Joker in The Dark Knight, he says, nobody cares when bad things happen so long as there's a plan. But the minute there's no plan, then everybody goes crazy. Okay, that's, that's the shtick in the, in the Dark Knight. And that's true. That's true. So we tend as human beings to attribute plans to people that don't actually exist. It happens all the time. It happens to you in your personal life. Like your spouse forgets something. It's like, why are you ignoring me? Why didn't you listen to me? It's like, well, I just forgot or I wasn't paying attention. Almost all marital conflict is driven by people misattributing motives for stuff that is basically people being dumb. And it's true for virtually all interpersonal conflict. It's pretty rare that people are really so evil and mean that they intend to do something really nasty. Most people are just doing stupid things. But when it comes to government conspiracy theories, it's very easy to attribute malignity to people's intentions. So take, for example, the, the Trump Tower meeting. So the left attributes the Trump Tower meeting to the malign intent of President Trump to collude with the Russians in stealing the election. Or it's possible Donald Trump Jr. is uh, sort of dumb. And that Donald Trump Jr., when it comes to this, when it comes to meeting with the Russians, he's like, oh, they've got some oppo. I like oppo. Let's go get the oppo. And that was pretty much the end of it. Now, is that bad? Yeah. Is it like he's sitting with Vladimir Putin over a chessboard bad? Not really. It's mostly just people being stupid and maybe a little bit bad. Okay, stupid and a little bit bad, I think, describes most human behavior. Well, the same thing is true with the theories that are being promulgated on the right about the Trump Tower meeting. So there's a new theory that's been put out by Lee Smith. I believe Lee Smith writes for the Weekly Standard. Is that right? Well, Lee Smith was on with uh, Tucker Carlson, and he has a theory about the Trump Tower meeting. His theory is that the Trump Tower meeting between Donald Trump Jr. and Natalia Veselnitskaya, who is a Russian-connected lawyer, it was actually set up by Fusion GPS and Hillary Clinton, that it was this complex scam in which the Russians would approach Donald Trump Jr. with an offer of oppo specifically to entrap Donald Trump Jr. And then it would be released that the Russians were in bed with the Trump campaign. And then all of this would bring the campaign crashing down about Donald Trump Jr.'s ears and his father's ears. So here's Lee Smith articulating this theory on the um, Tucker Carlson. I think one of the most important things to uh, to look at, it's actually there's one key to it, and that is the Russian lawyer that is supposed to be the uh, test of the proof of collusion. This was a client right. of Glenn Simpson, and Glenn Simpson was the person who was responsible for producing the Clinton-funded dossier. So how does this happen? How does this combination happen? How are all these people in the same room? Okay, the answer to how all these people are in the same room is because everybody in political circles in the United States at a high level knows each other. And also, people are dumb. So how about that? How about people are just stupid? 
Okay, the, 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 there's a big hole in this particular thing. Listen, I know a lot of my listeners love this theory that Donald Trump Jr. didn't do anything wrong and that it was all about Hillary Clinton manipulating from behind the scenes and all this sort of nonsense. Here's why the theory doesn't hold up. If Hillary Clinton manipulated the meeting and then if she knew about the meeting, why didn't she release information on the meeting the next week? Okay, why didn't Fusion GPS just say the Russians are meeting with, they met at Trump Tower with the Trump campaign in order to collude to get Apple on Hillary? Why, why did that wait until after the election in order for that information to be broken? And the answer is because this is, again, attributing conspiracy where, where no conspiracy lies. I just, I don't buy it. Now, there are certain people who I think are intelligent enough to actually participate in bad behavior, but anything that requires a lot of people coordinating is probably unlikely. You know, individuals doing dumb things, is a lot easier than an entire network of people coordinating to accomplish a purpose. That's why most businesses fail. If it were that easy, most businesses would be successful. Okay, other things that I hate. So there's an, there's an article in the UK Sun today about how rough Americans have it. It is titled, The Average American Takes Less Holiday Time Than a Medieval Peasant, Economist Reveals. So the US is the only advanced country with no national vacation policy whatsoever, plus has a culture of working long hours. According to Business Insider, many American workers must keep on working through public holidays and vacation days often go unused. The advent of smartphones means that people are not logging off as often as they were before. They say medieval peasants face disease, famine, or being bumped off in bloody wars, but the church often enforced mandatory holidays to prevent the serfs from uprising. Sundays were national holidays. There were breaks after harvest seasons. Now listen, as a dude who takes off every Friday night to Saturday night, I'm I'm a fan of holidays. I have enforced holidays via my religion. But if the implication is that we have it rougher than medieval serfs, I'm going to go no on that. They're all dead at 37, had no teeth, and were watching their kids die in infancy. So no on that. One of the things that makes modern civilization pretty amazing is the fact that we have all of these technologies which are bolstered by a system of work that has become more and more sophisticated. Plus, if you really want to equate the kind of work that medieval peasant serfs were doing with the kind of work that you're doing sitting on your ass at the office all day, punching numbers into a machine, I'm going to go no on that as well. And medieval serfs were out there fighting disease while trying to dig up rocks out of their field. Not the same thing. So again, the, the, yes, I'm sure that it's just like medieval serfs. It's just, Americans are living just like medieval serfs. I, I keep hearing how rough Americans have, and then I look around America, and there's certain people who have it rough, but overall, I think we're doing pretty well, like as in the best in human history. So can we cut out all of the alarmism about how rough Americans have it as a general rule, as a general rule? Okay, time for a psalm. So we are on psalm number five. We've been remiss for the past couple of weeks in not going through a psalm, so let's go through this one. Uh, this, is, this one is uh, for the director of music for Pipes, a psalm of David. Remember, all the psalms were songs, and one of the beautiful things about the psalms is that indeed they were sung, uh, and that is how they are remembered. One of the beautiful things about the, the Bible is that much of the Bible is written in lyric. Uh, much of it is written in verse. The, song, the book of Psalms was meant to be sung. There are actual tunes to a lot of these. And oral legacies tend to bring cultures even further than written legacies a lot of the time. Written legacies are not confined to time and space, but oral legacies tie you to your parents. Every time you hear and to your ancestors, every time you hear a song, it reminds you of when your parent was singing you that song. Every time you hear something on the radio, you're immediately shifted back to the first time you heard that song or the most important time you heard that song. And that ties you, it roots you in a history that is important for you to remember as you go forward in life. I remember one time back during, a, there was a Passover Seder, this is probably 15 years ago now, maybe longer, maybe, maybe 17 or 18 years ago. Um, and I used to study violin with one of the top 10 teachers in the world. And my violin teacher was an expatriate from the Soviet Union. He had been the the uh, first chair or, or the concert master, and I believe it was the Kiev Philharmonic, and Jewish guy, 
But because he lived in the Soviet Union, you weren't allowed to practice Judaism in the Soviet Union. They had tried to root it out. And so he had not had a Passover Seder. He was in his 80s. He had not had a Passover Seder for legitimately 70 years. He came over, didn't remember any of the Seder. And then we got to a portion of the Seder that is sung, and suddenly he remembered his father singing that to him. That is the, the, the reason that songs are actually important. It's why so much of the Bible is written in lyric style. In fact, when we read the, when we read the Bible, when we read the Torah in, in synagogue, there's actually cancellation notes, right? It's all sung. It's all sung. It's not just read. We don't actually just read the words. Like my bar mitzvah parsha, I still remember the actual Hebrew of my bar mitzvah parsha by memory because I remember the tune that goes with it. Right? It's, it's from Parsha Peshalach in, in the book of Exodus. It's the, it's the whole section where uh, the Jews finally exit Egypt. You remember things that are sung. In any case, the psalm says, Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful and deceitful you, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence, I bow down toward your holy temple. He says that, you know, when it comes to the enemies, not a word of their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they tell lies. There's a lot of focus on untruth. And deliberate untruth is, in fact, the path toward ungodliness. Deliberate untruth, whether you're lying to yourself or lying to others, is the path toward ungodliness. I think that's the lesson of today's show, frankly. Uh, if, if you are lying to yourself or to others about moral values in order to achieve a certain goal, you're on the wrong side. You're on the wrong side, not of history, of morality. And we should all keep that in mind as we go forward, because after all, what is politics about but promulgation of values that are worthwhile and eternal? All righty, we'll be back here tomorrow with all the latest. Plus, we have our show tonight over in, in Dallas. So if you have not actually purchased a ticket, now is the last chance for you to do so. Go over to Ticketmaster Live Nation. It's like a handful of tickets left. Go check it out. Or Phoenix tomorrow night. Uh, that is also a handful of tickets. Again, Live Nation or, or Ticketmaster to check that out. And we will see you back here tomorrow. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Senya Villarreal. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Caramina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.